as we have been instructed to acknowledge and appreciate the gifts that are being used, I just want to publicly say thank you to Mike uh, for leading worship tonight. What a great job. And every time I hear him lead worship and lead us in song, um, I'm impressed by his ability and not only to lead us in the, the old hymns, but also the new songs and striking a good balance, the planning that he puts into it to uh, go along with what we're talking about. And all of our song leaders uh, are taught to think about those things, but Mike just did an exceptionally job, uh, exceptional job tonight, and I wanted to, to thank him for that. Um, you're so much better than our last youth minister. You bring so much more to the table. Now, he really does a good job, and we appreciate it. We are on Sunday nights in this series called Unswerving. And if you don't know, or if you're not familiar, this is basically the stories of bold faith. What we're doing is going through the Northside 90-day reading schedule, and I pick one of the stories from that week's reading and talk about the faith that it took to um, as part of that story. So far, we've covered the father of the demon-possessed boy and his struggle with unbelief. We talked about the widow and her total trust in the Lord. And we talked about, uh, last week, the ordinary, talking about the apostles and how they were not exceptional men other than the fact that they had been with Jesus. If you open your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 2. This is not the subject of our text tonight, but there's a character mentioned in here that I wanted to illuminate just a little bit as it goes along with our thoughts for tonight. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is in the midst of addressing the churches, the seven major churches of Asia Minor, and he is writing a personal letter to each of them. And in this particular church called Pergamum, he addresses a certain character. Uh, This is starting about in verse 12. Jesus says these words, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, and yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. I'd love to give you an exposition on the whole letter, but I just really want to stop there. You probably don't know who Antipas is. I didn't before I studied it myself. Pergamum was a godless city. It was probably best known for its paganism and religious tolerance. They had uh, shrines and altars to every kind of god. And this, he calls it the throne of Satan. That's not just a a phrase saying it's a bad place. There was a literal uh, altar to Zeus. It was a U-shaped, it was a huge thing. I think it's now over in Germany. It's actual real uh, place where they offered sacrifices to Zeus. And they, they called it the throne of Satan. Christians referred to it as that. Well, as you can imagine, in such a culture, there was a tremendous amount of persecution 
of the saints, of these believers of the way who said that you know, Jesus is the only way to the Father. Let me tell you about the way, the truth, and the life. As often happens in uh, cultures of extreme tolerance where the only uh, intolerance you have is for Christians, uh, persecution begins to break out. And there was a well-known character named Antipas. Now, he was a church leader. All of the Christians would have known him. And making a long story really short, basically what happened was uh, he was called on, on account of his faith. And they said, we're going to make an example of this guy and we're going to sacrifice him. And they didn't just sacrifice him in a you know, a normal um, decapitation or, or impaling him on a sword or anything like that. What they did was they had this giant bronze bull and it was made especially for sacrifices completely of bronze and it opened up and they would bind the person by the hands and by the feet and and they would put him inside the belly of this bronze bull they would seal it up and it would light a fire underneath they would literally roast him to death now that was part of their not just making an example saying you need to, to bow to the one true God, but they would say that the, that the bull actually came alive as they would hear the groans and the moanings of the person being roasted to death. The story goes that Antipas, the church leader that he was, refusing to bow his knee to any other name but Jesus, as he was cruelly in such a painful, grotesque kind of way, called to die for his Lord, instead of moaning and howling in pain, was heard saying prayers for his fellow brothers and sisters, praying that they might remain strong, praying that they might not bow, praying that they would stay faithful to the one who had stayed faithful to them. The whole lesson of Antipas's life was something that they knew well. We don't. But we, we understand from Revelation chapter 2 and 3, really the whole book, is this one message. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Now, it's hard for us to identify with that. We're not there yet in our culture. But it reminds us of a very powerful truth. What we're going to look at tonight has to do with how faith prospers under persecution. Now, turn out of Revelation, go back to the book of Acts, and that's where we're going to be. If you don't know, our whole series is based on Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. And there the writer says this, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. That promise is true for us. It was true for Antipas. It was uh, true for all of the early first century Christian martyrs. It is just as true Today, it will be true for my children and their children. Uh, the one to whom we hold is faithful. Acts chapter 16, verses 25 through 30 is where we're going to be. And this is day 36 of the Northside 90-day reading. If you're following along, uh, that's when you would have come across this story. Let's read together from Acts 16, verses 25 through 30. About midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, which is an unusual thing. We'll find out why in just a minute. And the prisoners were listening to them. 
And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. The jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword, was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, on that surface, that story is a pretty interesting story. You get a little background, a little bit of history. It tells us a lot more about the kind of faith exemplified by early Christians and certainly um, by Paul and Silas in this, in this story. Acts chapter 16 Verse 9, Paul receives the Macedonian call, and he, he goes to what we would call Europe today, and Philippi, the city, would have been one of the first, if not the first, uh, stop in their missionary journey. As they go across, they come into the town, and they meet their girl. This girl was had a unique gift, the ability to practice divination. She was a slave, and so she was quite profitable for her owners. And Paul and Silas <clears throat> heal this girl. They drive out the spirit of divination. And I, for some reason, her owners were upset at that. The slave girl had been a source of business, a profit. They cast the spirit out. And profits dropped dramatically. So these two pagan businessmen, clearly anti-Semitic, dragged Paul and Silas to the authorities. And they say, these guys are causing a ruckus. They say their basic two charges, one, they're being disorderly conduct, is what we may call it today, rabble-rousers. And two, they're proclaiming that they're bringing all this Judaism in here and they're proclaiming that we got to do stuff that Rome didn't authorize. So they, they incite a riot, and the two judges uh, that they bring them to tear their robes. And Paul and Silas are ordered to be beat with rods. Now, ignoring the fact that this is completely unjust punishment, there was no crime committed, truly. They were thrown into to prison. They were beaten mercilessly. Uh, there's a lesson here before we even get to the story, and that is this. The best time to show yourself a Christian is in those moments when you are wronged unfairly, when you are accused, when you are persecuted, when you are spoken ill of, and it's against our very nature. We want to defend ourselves. We want to say this isn't right. But in those opportunities, and maybe you're going through one right now, you have a beautiful podium, a platform for the message of Christ. And I think it was on this platform that, that God most powerfully spread the message of Christianity all throughout the early first century world. The jailer was told to guard them securely. We'll talk about what jailers, who they were most typically and what they did 
But they said, I want you to put Paul and Silas in the inner part of the prison, um, which would would be the most secure part. It would be the, the, the place for the worst, most violent uh, offenders that they didn't want to escape. And then put their feet in, in stocks just to make it miserable for them while they're there. If you've ever tried to sit in one position for more than... You know, five or ten minutes. I mean, even as you're sitting here tonight, you'll adjust your seating. Stocks were basically to help you not adjust. It was very painful, uncomfortable, induced a lot of cramping, and it was just, just made it miserable for the prisoners. And again, it was usually reserved for the worst of the worst. Paul and Silas weren't those guys. They didn't deserve this. It wasn't right. And yet God called them to this point. Let's talk a little bit about prospering under persecution. Mike did a great job tonight about calling us into first century Christianity, where Christians were much less open about being Christians, because it could well cost them not only their livelihood and their families and their friends and their position, it could lead to some very horrible persecution if they got real serious about it. And the songs we sang tonight were beautiful. But you notice they were kind of slow and, and thoughtful and, and reminding us of who we are. And I don't know what kind of songs Paul and Silas sang that night in the jail. I'm surprised they were singing at all. We have a hard time singing when the, you know, when the temperature's too high or too low in here. When somebody doesn't lead it at the right pace or they don't lead the songs that we like. For some reason, I have in mind, Paul and Silas were singing that good old-fashioned hymn, I've got that joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Silas is going, where? I, I, I just, there is something within the DNA of Christians that has always been so firm and, and unstoppable in the face of persecution. That, that we... For those of us who get it, understand the trueness and the depth of our hope in Christ. And once you really get that, you just can't stop your joy. You think about where they were, and this is after a full day, after beatings, after being in, in the stocks, after being in the worst part of the prison. It's at midnight, Contrary to what Steve sometimes would tell you, I guess good things do happen after midnight on occasion. Because, here's an example. They're praying and they're singing hymns to God. And, and that's a beautiful picture, but that's not the best picture. The best picture is the last part of that verse. The other prisoners were listening to them. Now these, these, are, these are the genuine criminals. This is a place where you didn't want to be, was a pagan jail in first century Philippi. And they hear these guys, I got that joy, 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 or whatever they were singing. And they're listening. Paul and Silas are preaching to them, and they don't know it. The lesson for us is this. When, in, when you are confronted with impossible circumstances, and you will be, remember that prayer and praise have the power to set us free, have the power to keep our message pure. 
Maybe you're at midnight in your own life. Things are pretty dark. You're not sure if morning will come. Don't give up. Keep singing. Keep praying. God hasn't forgotten you. It's like he didn't forget them. A simple example, maybe you've seen this illustration before. There is, I pulled out a little, went to the kitchen beforehand, and I pulled out this this sponge, and I don't know if you can see it, but the sponge absorbs everything around it. And when I started, this, this sponge was dry. I put a little water in there. It's absorbed everything in it. Now, the way you know what's inside is, of course, to do this, to squeeze it. And once you squeeze it, the harder you squeeze it, the more of what's inside comes out. In your life and and in mine, too, we're going to be squeezed. And there are some churches that teach that's a bad thing. You must have done something wrong. That's not the Christianity you see in the Bible. Early Christians, we're going to look at it, Jesus pointed out, knew there were going to be times when you were going to be squeezed. Harder than you've ever been squeezed before. To the point where you don't know if there's anything left. And it is precisely in these moments where we find out exactly what's inside. May we not forget the lesson of being squeezed and the value of it, because it shows what's truly on the inside. Persecution, as we've said, is not a matter of if, but when. If you are a Christian, you will be persecuted. John chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus said this. He said, if the world hates you, Know that it hated me before it hated you. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all people who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The time's coming. I mean, Friday night I went to a musical. As you, this may surprise you, but I'm not a, a, a musical kind of guy. One of our young men was in there. We had several <clears throat> students at Goddard who were in the production. So I was watching the musical, Cinderella, and it was, it was during the scene change. And they were moving stuff around. <laughs> and uh, there was this moment where they... They moved the scenery, had to go off the stage, and so they were pushing it back. And they had to pull back what are called the, the wings, the, the curtains that basically mask everything outside of the stage from the audience. So they pulled that curtain back, and there you could see everything going on behind the stage. You could see people moving about, people giving orders, actors moving about to their various places. Uh, it, it was a glimpse into what was going on backstage. And I had this thought. And it is this. You and I are on this stage. 
And, and Paul says that it's not flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the principalities. There's all this stuff going on behind the scenes that we don't get to see. And when persecution happens, there's a reason for that. When your life gets squeezed, there's a reason for that. And oh, but for the times when we could just pull back the curtain and get a glimpse of understanding into the eternal things that are going on in your finite life. Persecution is one of the tricks, tricks, strategies of the enemy and always has been. We'll separate the wheat from the chaff by sifting them. That's what the enemy asked to do of Peter. I've asked, sift, separate. Things get bad in this country. You're going to watch a great sifting happen in the church when it no longer becomes a matter of convenience but a matter of principle be an interesting day. This is what happened in the first century as they live this out from day to day. Now that doesn't happen a lot any, anymore because I think as a strategy for the enemy, it's a lot more effective to let us be comfortable than to persecute us. It's a lot more effective. But the scripture is very clear that if you haven't been persecuted for your faith as a Christian... You are probably not much of one. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus gave instructions about what to do. He said this, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He didn't talk about lawsuits. He didn't talk about strategy. He just said, love them and pray for them. In Acts chapter 5. One of the many times when the apostles were dragged in and flogged, the, the reaction in Matthew, Acts chapter 5, verse 40 and following was joy that they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Peter would go on to say, 1 Peter chapter 3, 14, even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts... Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that you have. Yet, do this with gentleness and respect. When you're persecuted, you have a, a, a manner of responding that was taught by Christ, exemplified by the early church, and taught again by the apostles. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that it should be God's will, than for doing evil. Many years ago when I was in college, I went to Oklahoma Christian. And there was a, a summer where I had to make up some elective hours. I love my alma mater, but elective hours are super expensive at my alma mater to, to take courses that I could take anywhere. So I came back home for the summer, 
as I always did, and I decided I was going to take some courses at a community college. I had to work somehow nine hours into that summer is how far I was behind. So one of the classes I took was an ethics course. I thought, well, that'll be an easy one. It was an ethics class taught by a pagan. And I'm not kidding. I think it was his goal to do what he could to tweak those of us Bible-believing Christians. And he would say things that were just false and ridiculous. And things that riled up a foolish 20-year-old who liked to argue. His mockery gave me an opportunity to defend, to speak up. I tried to do that without being defensive. I tried to do this, as First Peter said, in a gentle, respectful way. But in a way that said, I'm not, I'm not bowing to you. I'm, I'm not buying what you're selling. Now, I didn't think that was that big of a deal. I just thought that was what Christians did. Later in the class, may have even been after it was over the last day or something, another lady came up and she said, I want you to know that our church has been praying for you intentionally, specifically, by name, because you've been willing to speak up against this professor we've all been so frustrated with. I don't think, in retrospect, I, I mean... History will be the judge. I'm sure I didn't convert the professor. <laughs> and I probably only made people who already believe like me feel stronger. But there are, I only bring up that example to say, there will be times when you are called. And because of your conviction, you'll have to stand up for what's right and for what's true. And you can't worry about the consequences and the fallout and what will happen. You just have to do the right thing then. So they're in prison. They're singing and praying to God. They are giving their testimony, if you will, to the prisoners. And then God shakes things up. Now, was it a result of prayer? We know that earlier Christians, the place where they had prayed was shaken. Was it because of the Christians, other Christians praying? Perhaps. Um, was it a an, just a natural thing, an earthquake? Perhaps, hard to know without being there directly, I guess. But it tells us that the foundation shook, the doors were opened, and the chains were unfastened. That's that chains being unfastened part. It made me think there's probably something more to this shaking going on. I think God needed to open some doors for them, and he did. Now, this Roman soldier was in fear of his life, because this is, this is bad. If you're the guy in charge of the prison, and all of a sudden the shackles are loosened, and the doors are open, and the prisoners are gone, the consequence for that will not be a simple demerit on your record. Not in first century. This guy was going to pay for it with his life. I said, all right, all right. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to wait on the trial. I'm not going to be ridiculed. I'm not going to have my family go through this. I'm just going to take my own life and be done. And that's what he was trained to do. Jailers were most commonly in the first century, they were retired Roman soldiers. They were people who were trained and equipped 
to, to enforce the law, and yet they were old enough and well enough along that they didn't, uh, you know, in a prison, they just had to make sure that the guys went where they were told to go and make sure they stayed in the shackles. So there wasn't as much danger as being a centurion on the front lines. A lot of Roman soldiers did this as a form of, we might call it, repurposing. <laughs> they, uh, you know, you go to a Walmart or something and there's a security guard there. And a lot of times the security guards are retired police. They've had the training on the front lines and they're, they're ready to use that, but just not in a, such a high-intensity environment. So the jailer, the jail shaken up and the jailer shaken up. Because this is not what he intended for his retirement program. Paul says, don't do it. We're here. Now, Paul, you could say that Paul and Silas missed in the opportunity to escape. I mean, maybe that's what God was trying to do. Hey, be free. But they didn't take it. In fact, no one left. Paul is going to share with him a message that has much greater importance than their own freedom from this bad place. So the guard calls for lights. He rushes in. He sees everyone there, and he responds. And he trembles in fear. And, and Paul's going to direct that fear in the right way. Not in despair where you're ready to end your life, but in hope. There's a reason why we didn't move when the shackles fell. Because our hope is not in getting out of this prison. Our hope is, is far beyond that. So this holy fear of the guard is what I want to talk about. Fear of the Lord is a, a bit of a lost concept in our postmodern world. Even when you hear it talked about in a church setting, a lot of times it's just, well, fear has to do with respect. And I know I agree, agree that it does, but we're talking about holy fear. We're talking about a, a much deeper level of fear here than just, hmm, I respect the Lord. I have a lot of respect for him. He does good things. You know, respect is this idea like I just, I just look up to you. But holy fear is this, ha, oh, oh, oh. It, it was this unique reaction that every time a person meets a celestial being or has a vision of heaven or is, even gets close to the realm of God, the reaction over and over and over again is trembling and fear. There is too little fear of God in a godless society. We need to be God-fearing people. Holy fear is what leads to holy living. A couple of examples. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Old Testament. You can go there if you like. Foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah is having a vision. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a people, dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When, when he saw the vision of God, he was filled with fear because he understood it was something much greater than him. This is part of what the jailer felt. Matthew chapter 10, this is what Jesus says. So have no fear of them. He's talking about people who persecute them. 
For nothing that is, uh, I'm sorry, he's talking about the teachers, rather. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden, that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I don't know if you remember the first time you became, like when you were ready to become a Christian. Like you were ready to, you know. For me, it was a night like this. Actually, it was two, almost to the day, 25 years ago. I looked it up. February 24th, 1991. And I sat on a night like this, Sunday night. The reason I was there on Sunday night was because I wanted to be baptized so badly. I had studied it. I asked all the questions. I would studied with my great aunt and uncle. I was ready to do it. I knew, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? I understood that I needed Jesus. I understood without him in eternity, I had no hope. And I had, I had a very sincere, real, real, real fear of hell. I'm addressing this group here because this is a good thing to think about. It ought to, and I don't mean this flippantly, scare hell out of you when you think about eternity. That it doesn't end. That where you end up when you close your eyes for the last time will be an unending state. It gives me shudders just to think about it. And I would think about that thought when I thought, am I ready for eternity? And I wasn't. And I knew I needed Jesus, and I knew I needed to be baptized to be in Christ. And I wasn't ready for eternity. Sunday morning, I, was, I wanted to be baptized. My mom had asked me not to because she, worked, she was a nurse, and she had to work during that time. She really wanted to be there. And I, that weighed hard on me. Because I knew that either I was going to die or Jesus was going to return. And I was back into thinking about eternity in hell. And if you haven't read descriptions of hell in the Bible, it's not good. It's real bad. So I can remember sitting in our teen section on Sunday morning. And I was on the edge of the pew, just right there where Will's sitting, and I was just, I, Mom or Jesus, Mom or Jesus. It was a hard decision for a 12-year-old to make, but I decided to stay there. I just trusted the grace of God. I'm not saying I understood it perfectly, but I just asked him to delay a few hours. It was Sunday night, and I made a beeline at the invitation song. I don't remember what the sermon was about. Get me in the water. Because I had holy fear. That's what makes churches ungodly when they lose that. That's what makes people ungodly when they lose that. And, and yes, Jesus is our Father, and yes, He loves us and all that. But if you don't fear your Father, when you mess up, you know, and your mom says, just wait till your father gets home. Mm-hmm. 
It's not because your father doesn't love you. You just there's just something about our father that yeah strikes fear if he uses the right voice. We hear the sound of the belt going through the straps or whatever. We need holy fear. And that's not a bad thing because holy fear leads to godly living. He bows his knee, he trembles, he falls falls before Saul and Paul and Silas out of holy fear. And it reminds us of Philippians chapter 2. Every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. I don't care if you believe in him or not. Your knee will bow. Now in this world, you get to choose that. Judgment day, you don't get to choose. You're going to be, I mean, I pick the most ardent atheist out there. He's not alive anymore. Christopher Hitchens was a famous one. Oh, he's not an atheist anymore. He stepped into eternity, and his knee, if it hasn't yet, it will bow. The jailer asked the greatest question, which is, what must I do to be saved? And we know that. We, we know you got to believe in Jesus. you got to have faith in Jesus, which is more than just saying, I trust God, but really trusting him to a point where you obey. The whole purpose of everything we do as a church whatever ministry you're involved in, the miracles that they did back then, the Bible itself, all of that, what's it for? The whole purpose of all of it is to get people to believe in Christ. To do what he said. You and your household. Paul reminds them, hey, this, this, you don't have to be afraid anymore. I'm going to tell you about your Savior, who will deliver you not just from a prison, physical prison, but from a spiritual prison. That you can know a peace that passes all understanding. So they're baptized, him and his whole household, and it all stems from this holy fear that he has. That happened, maybe as a result of the earthquake, maybe as a result of him thinking, my life is as good as over. But I think more than that, him seeing Paul and Silas and understanding they had something that he didn't have. You ought to fear God. And if you're not a Christian, I can't make it any more plain than that. You ought to think about eternity. You ought to think about eternity in heaven but if you're not a Christian, you ought to think about the reality of the eternity in hell you face without Christ. Not as a result of how good you are, how many times you're in this room, all the good stuff you've done. If you don't have Jesus, you face hell in eternity. And there is only one way out of that. What must I do to be saved? And they, they tell him. They tell them about Jesus, they tell them about the gospel plan, and they do it. Now you, Sunday night crowd, I assume you've heard people tell nearly your whole life. But if you haven't, you just need to know. If you're not in Christ, what are you waiting for? It's time to ask the question. More importantly, it's time to answer with the right actions. Next week we'll talk about the weak and the strong, again, if you need Christ tonight, you have not put him on in baptism, 
There's no better time than right now to make it known. He is Lord. The question is whether or not he's Lord of you. I hope you'll make that right decision. I'll meet you down front if you have that need or any need as together we sing.